diversity, equity, and inclusion training. Anybody here who has, in a part of a company that's over like 50 people, has been in one. Its purpose is to better work with others of different abilities, backgrounds, nationalities, nationalities, genders, and cultures. I may have to go like this, yeah, in order to continue this sermon. <laughs> if your places of work don't have these, just ask somebody whose places of work is a little bit larger than yours, and you will understand. They will tell you either all or one or many of these things. <clears throat> it's a life-giving experience. It's the first time ever that you felt heard or seen or ever begun to be understood. It's a life-altering experience. The time you started to appreciate the differences you were once suspect of. It's a life-numbing experience because it was an eight-hour meeting that could have took a 20-minute video and you would have gotten some work done that day. It's a life-frustrating experience because these self-righteous trainers make our work environment a place that seems that everyone's scared to talk. I've been to several DEI trainings I've served on a DEI committee of a pretty large institution in town. And I felt all of these things. But here's the deal. Our passage today, which I'm not going to read because it's going to take, it would take 10 minutes to read through, and then you'd have all sorts of questions. So I'm going to just read and preach at the same time and then summarize with some stuff later. Am I, what's going on? All right. Thank you, Luke Scott, or... Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so our, our passage today is DEI training by the Spirit on Peter. And it becomes the foundational training for the, how the church will be the church in the rest of Acts and the rest of, like, salvation history. It will become the training for what Revelation says is a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus. There's a reason why chapter 9 and chapter 10 are right, one right after the other. Saul's road to Damascus experience prepares the ground for him being, now Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. But there's a problem with that because 95% of the church at the time are Jewish, ethnically, culturally, religiously. And so the Spirit has a ton of work to do because God's people aren't ready for a bunch of crazy Gentiles showing up at the family reunion. They're just not ready. So the Spirit gives Peter the road from the rooftop of Joppa to Cornelius' house experience. so that the Jews would be able to embrace what the Spirit was doing through the work of Paul. To be able to receive all these weird foreigners as brothers and sisters, to embrace them as if they would belong. And all I have to say is, are we that different? So Luke isn't a poet. He's kind of a Charles... Dickens' novelist, he, he's not afraid of words, and lots of them. 
and he doesn't mind repeating the story over and over again for verification. So what I've done is I've like painstakingly gone through this text, which is about, again, 10 minutes of reading, and I've tried to pull out things that I think would help you hear the story. If I only preached a portion of it, it wouldn't get the whole story. So I'm in this bind in Western culture, because if we were in a different culture, one like I'm wearing right now, you'd be fine with a 75-minute sermon. You wouldn't think twice about it, but y'all like get hungry and stuff like that. <laughs> so I've painstakingly gone through, but I'm really asking you to go all the way through all of 10 and that little first part of 11 that I'm going through. And I have a lot printed for you, but that's like half of it. So give yourselves to that text, both now and also later this week. There's repetition in it. That repetition isn't trying to be um, anything. uh, Just trust the spirit in the repetition. Give yourselves to it. And though it might seem boring and like, oh, I just heard this, maybe it's doing something different. It starts out in verse 1. At Caesarea was Cornelius, a centurion in the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. You got to understand that Cornelius is a bad mamma-jamma. Caesarea is like a really important city, and he's earned the trust of Rome itself to oversee what's going on there, right? And not just because he's the head of the Italian cohort, which we all know Italians are awesome, They're both lovers and fighters, not lovers and not fighters. Yet he was this one called a God-fearer, which is a term, Jewish term, that means that he's an uncircumcised foreigner that had deep respect, delight, and aligned himself with Yahweh in so many ways, the God of Israel. And he's described as being generous and prayerful. So Luke wants you to like him because you ought to like him. Verse 3, an angel of God came in and uh, said to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now, it's not foreign for Cornelius to hear a military dispatch. It is from um, an angel of God. And so he feels the terror Even though he's kind of a tough guy, he's a little bit freaked out, but he goes dutifully forward, heard his orders, and sent his men. It's kind of a Saving Private Ryan mission, but different. Cornelius' orders are now clear, and he instructs his men to go get Peter. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Joppa, Peter is there. Peter went to to the top of the house to pray. And he was hungry. That's just as perfect as ever, right? Like, because when I go out to pray, I usually think of my to-do list, right? But you get distracted easily. So he's hungry. So he went down, and while he was preparing it, he fell into a trance, as one does, and saw the heavens open up in a great sheet, oftentimes called a sail, descending, let down by its four corners upon the earth, with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and a voice came and says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I don't know how many of you have eaten cross-culturally. I've probably eaten in 20 different 
countries where I experienced in, uh, indigenous food, including pickled pig's feet in Georgia. <laughs> get an amen there. Um, Ethiopian injera, Jamaican aki and, salt, aki and saltfish. I've had sea urchin peeled from a Japanese aquarium. Now, not are equally as tasty or as not tasty, but here's the deal with this story. This wasn't about it tasting gross or delicious. None of us would consider me doing that as a moral issue. But Peter did. I had a friend who was a, um, a missions major at um, Moody Bible Institute, and you couldn't pass the initial 101 class unless you ate a cockroach. Yep, cockroach. You got it. You can shake. You, yeah, he's Lord of all. <laughs> but God told him to kill and to eat. But Peter believed that God said he should never eat this kind of thing. It was a theological and moral issue. It wasn't just a gross issue. It's like if Peter was one of those pompous vegans. None of our vegans are pompous, by the way. But it's, one, it's like one of those pompous vegans, and God tells him to go chow down on some alligator or something like that. You know what I mean? Or like Purdue chicken. Factory-raised, industrial, injected. It's not just cultural or social for Peter. It's moral, theological. It's about obeying God. And he's hearing a voice that's saying different than what he was reared on. This is huge. That's why Peter says, by no means. In Greek, it's metomas. Uh, even sounds like by no means. Heck no. I'm not doing that. I've never done anything like that. And you've got to love Peter, right? He's always petulant, sometimes wise. Always committed, never really curious. This is the same dude who said, Jesus, you will never wash my feet. He's the same dude who said, who, who took a sword and cut the ear off a dude. Same guy who said, I will never deny you, much less three times. Love this guy. Man after my own heart. Clearly Italian. <clears throat> Which probably would not let me pass the DEI training. The voice came again. What God has made clean, do not call unclean or common. And this happened three times. And we know anything about scripture is that Peter is like a three times guy. You got to tell him three times. The story continues. Peter, perplexed, stood at the gate, pondering the vision. And the spirit came to him and said, behold, three men are looking for you. I have sent them. Peter went down and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Why are you here? You got to love Peter. Again, he's obedient to the voice and the vision, but he's not actually cool with what's going on. He's perplexed and pondering. And, he said, and so the Spirit says, you got to look out for this crew that's coming. And he's like, okay, I'll do that. And then he introduces himself in, the, in like the least Southern or Palestinian way ever, which is, why are you here? Then they said, and this is where one of those like kind of longer parts of it that I'm Skipping a little bit, the angel directed Cornelius to send for Peter to come and tell the whole story. Peter takes the invite. He rose, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. He takes the invite, 
but grabs a couple buddies to go with him. Now, meanwhile, back in Caesarea, Cornelius is expecting his, uh, is, is Peter's coming, and he calls all of his relatives and friends, it says. And in verse 25, it says, when Peter entered, Cornelius fell down at his feet and worshiped him. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. He said, you know what's unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit anyone uh, a Gentile, but God said not to call anyone common or unclean, so when I was sent for, I came. So why am I here? Again, not the most gracious response. And yet leaning in to this idea that God's doing something different. And this, y'all, is my favorite part. You got all the tension and the fear and the being freaked out about having, having to live, have this cross-cultural experience. Peter's not even supposed to be under Cornelius' roof. It is unclean. And now there's this gaggle of other unclean people there in the room. Who knows what they're putting in their mouths? Who knows what they're, what, what, what they've, how they've lived in that stuff? All this ridiculous pagan stuff is going on and Peter has to fight against his internal disgust about what he's seeing and experiencing, his lifelong instincts on food and purity laws that God somehow seems to be changing on this rooftop vision, and his, dis, his deep distrust of Rome and its empire and all of its minions, which includes Cornelius. And he's having to walk into that space. There were standing tales of Gentiles as if they were the most terrible folks in the world, the worst persons you could imagine, who did all sorts of bad things to adults and children. This is a meeting between the Ukrainians and the Russians, like four of each in the most radical sides of things coming together. Then this ignorant pagan named Cornelius falls down and starts worshiping Peter. Peter thinks, Y'all are such idol worshipers. You're going to try to deify me? Peter's like, you can't do this. No, I am a man too. I know you guys worship false gods all the time and other men, but you've got to stop that stuff. I'm sure Peter's posse at this time is like rolling their eyes and like, hey, it's time to turn the heel and get out of here because this is clearly not God. I don't know what you ate, Peter, but something you weren't hearing God. Something else is going on. We're breaking the law to enter this house and now we're experiencing idolatry? Are you kidding me? And Peter starts off nice. You can see him speaking against everything he was raised to believe. But he does get a dig in. He says, we can't even associate with you. But God said, I couldn't call you unclean. So what do you want? And then Cornelius, one of the most powerful human beings in the city, one who could have whispered and all of those guys from Joppa would have been immediately executed. Instead, he says this, I sent for you, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. He's even using military language then. 
come tell us what God's been telling you. And I'm not sure if it was Cornelius' humility, his sincerity, his eagerness. I'm not sure if the Spirit had just done his thing and worked on Peter so much, enabling Peter to trust that God would be doing something different with the gospel. But whatever God did to get Peter, God got him. Peter looked at the people who were existentially, emotionally, viscerally his absolute enemies and told them the story of God's redemptive rescue that comes through Jesus. So Peter opened his mouth, verse 34, and said, truly I understand, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right, what is, right is acceptable to him. Y'all, this is one of the most radical things a practicing Jew could have said in the first century. He's saying some people seem to belong to the covenant who aren't Jewish. I know that's a little bit weird for us to hear, but you cannot fully grasp the radical nature of a statement like that from Peter. And he says, if they fear God, which means something like bend the knee to Jesus, to the God of Israel, then they are welcome. They belong. God shows no partiality to the ethnic, cultural, social expressions of those who bend their knee to Jesus. It doesn't get more radical than that. And then Peter gets to preaching. And y'all, this is my favorite part. It's, well, tied with the part before. Verse 36 through 48. And I'll just go through 41 right now. God sent preaching good news of peace. There was no peace between these people. And peace doesn't exist between friends. Peace exists between enemies. Preaching the good news of peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. You know what happened in Judea, from Galilee, Galilee to after John's baptism. God anointed Jesus with the spirit and power. He did good, healing those oppressed by the devil. We are witnesses to what he did for the Jews and in Jerusalem. I mean, he's still not even talking about the Gentiles yet. He's just telling the story of what Jesus did. They put him to death, hanging him on a tree. And God raised him on the third day and made him to appear to us. God chose to be his witnesses. And I love this part. We ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Remember I told you last week, eating and drinking, baptism, conversion, that's all of Christianity in a nutshell. Remember how Paul didn't eat or drink after his conversion experience until he was welcomed into the fellowship? And then they baptized him and he ate and drank. Peter continues, he commanded us to preach that he is appointed by God to, ju to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that everyone who believes in him 
will receive the forgiveness of sins. Paul's got about four sermons, I mean, Peter's got about four sermons this far, and they're all hot. This one's my favorite. Y'all, this is the wonder-working power of the proclaimed Word of God. Peter, internally, has got to be totally uncomfortable, but he's leaning in to the reality that God's working in different ways. He doesn't even understand it fully or particularly like it, but he's a witness to what Jesus' life has been. And now he's seeing these wonder-working realities that, that like, he's supposed to accept Gentiles too. And if that wasn't crazy enough, God shifts the whole thing in the response of Cornelius and the household. <clears throat> While Peter was speaking, didn't even finish his sermon, the Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The circumcised believers were amazed. So the posse from Joppa was like, what is going on here? The Spirit poured out even on the Gentiles. That's Cornelius and the household. And then Peter interrupts his own sermon and says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing for those who've received the Spirit just as we have? And he commanded that they be baptized in the name of Christ. Y'all, it's not an exaggeration to say that this is one of the most pivotal moments in the book of Acts, just like the road to Damascus. It's the most pivotal, one of the most pivotal moments in the history of the church, of all of redemptive history. Because God's redemptive love isn't just for the Jews who believe, but for anyone who believes. That's Red Sea kind of stuff, y'all. That's everything. Peter sees the Spirit transform hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, not just his fellow countrymen, but the people he hates has been trained to hate and is actively suspicious of. And he's like, well, all right, must be God. It's a double miracle. It's not just the miracle of the, the Gentiles converting, it's Peter converting to the vision of what the kingdom would be. Both are going on at the same time. And y'all, this is the event that changed the world. We talk about road to Damascus. It's super important. But the road to Damascus would have gone nowhere without this miracle as well. Because the church was not prepared to receive these crazy pagan Gentiles. Peter's like, I don't know how, but they got it. I kind of don't wish they did get it, but they got it. They got the Spirit. And I'm as surprised as you are, Joppa guys. Now let's get some water and baptize these brothers. Now, <clears throat> it wasn't quite over yet because that's what bleeds into chapter 11. Because when Peter got to back to Jerusalem, he started taking serious heat. He was like, you entered into Cornelius' house and did what? That's unclean. That's unlawful. So Peter goes on, like it says, that now that the, throughout Judea they heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, which are the kind of more, you got to be Jewish to be Christian, um, said, you went to an uncircumcised man and ate with them? 
And then Peter goes and explains, and Luke does the entire narrative again. And Peter summarizes this whole thing by said, saying, God gave them the same gift as he gave to us. I cannot stand in the way of God. The circumcision party fell silent and said, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. Peter had to justify his actions. And when he did, the circumcision party got the hush mouth. They had nothing to say. Gentiles get to come in as Gentiles. They don't even have to put skin in the game. Been waiting on that all week, y'all. <laughs> Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. <clears throat> now, <laughs> this story is incredible, and you know I'm excited about it. I think it's awesome. But I want to bring about three things, two or three things. Well, three things because I'm Presbyterian. We have to go back to the DEI training, diversity, um, equity, and inclusion. And I know DEI training for those of you, who have, especially in larger organizations, that have to do so much of it. In our cultural moment, maybe an unwise thing to do, to equate these things. Georgia, why do you always bring up the controversial stuff? You know how divisive DEI training is? Yep, I do. And that's why I'm using it. That's why I'm not using the term missionary training. Also a loaded term in our day. It's called cross-cultural training now in mission agencies. I was going to talk to you, originally my first illustration was to talk about the cool prep work in cross-cultural mission agencies and what they do, the language classes. You get to do like, just in case you're kidnapped exercises, right? You know that uh, you can't show your ankle to this culture or the bottom of your foot to this culture. Um, you, you, your left hand is off limits in another culture and you can't wrap a present in white paper in one culture because that's how they bury their dead, right? Here's the problem when I give you, when I use the, the cross-culture, I just can't do it anymore, guys, sorry, I'm trying. So much for having you experience cross-cultural stuff. Um, <clears throat> Because if you conjure that kind of thing, where you're being trained in cross-cultural work, the problem with that is that you volunteered to go do that work. Stuff that the All Words do, and Debbie Harrell does. I had to watch a video last week so I could work with our cross-cultural kids in Spain, but it was my delight to do so. The problem with Entering into the gospel world, into this kind of community, into this kind of work that the Spirit's doing, is that it ain't optional. You don't have a choice. You have to do this work because the Spirit's going to bring it to you either way. God forced training on them. And it's fundamental to Christianity. You can't follow Jesus without following him to the ends of the earth, internally or as a community externally. It's painful, it's visceral, it's uncomfortable, it's mind-blowing and heart-wrenching, but it ain't optional. 
Jesus calls all of us as Christians from around the world and throughout the political, social uh, arena to embrace one another and work it out together. Which leads me to the next thing. It's not just not optional. It requires something of us that must be spirit-born. And I'm absolutely stealing from Wendy Brown on this. Don't worry. It's not the first time I've stolen from her. It probably will not be the last. It's about holy curiosity. Both in your original perspective of what God's doing in the world and how he's dealing with others who've experienced the spirit in the world, no matter what their cultural experiences are. Cornelius was kind of curious from the get. Even as he fumbled around and literally broke the first commandment by worshiping Peter. It took a minute for Peter, but he got there. He was curious and humble about what the Spirit was doing. He was curiously skeptical at first, but then he was wholly, H-O-L-Y, curious at the end. He's like, okay then, maybe I need to expand my vision of what God's doing in the world and how he does it. You know what that's called? Holiness. Holy curiosity is not just about getting it right. It's having a posture of humility to see that God is bigger or maybe different than you might have first imagined. That doesn't mean we're wishy-washy about truth. We still humbly receive the word of God and the Spirit's leading. But y'all, I heard somebody say this earlier. Redeemer doesn't have the market to understand what God's doing in the world right now. And I would add, if you know anybody who thinks they do, run away. Our hope that God is doing something in the world right now is not tied to our understanding of what God is doing in the world right now. It's just that he's trustworthy and loving. And that sermon from Peter is the narrative of the story that is the truest thing in the universe. I've been a pastor for 25 years and preaching for a bunch of them. <clears throat> I had no way to figure out what my last point should be, so I'm going to do the most Sunday school answer ever and just say the last point is Jesus. The reason the center of our passage today is about the story of Jesus, where he just bears witness, talks about what happened, is because at that place and that space, and using him as the center set and not trying to find all the boundary sets all the time, but using him as the center of reality, not using him, accepting him as the center of reality, that's where we know how to take the next steps. What do love and justice, what does Jesus require of us? And that's both deeply personal in your relationship with him and deeply communal as we come together to figure out what our next steps might be. And it's all tied to to orienting our story to Peter's sermon, which is that Jesus came and did good 
and he fought off the evil in the world, and they killed him, and he died, and he rose again. And somehow, our story on Miller Street ties to that story that makes sense of the entire universe. Now, it makes sense of the entire universe in the same way everything turned upside down, and now you can see clearly. But sometimes, it's like we know about Jesus-ish, like we know his stats, but do we actually know and follow him? We get all the data in and put it into our spreadsheet, but the data is actually tied to a person, the person of Jesus. Here's the deal. The Bible reveals the most comprehensive, cosmological, global, intergenerational, multicultural, transnational diversity, equity, and inclusion reality in the world. And it's somehow tied to the person of Jesus Christ. And so the solution to all these things is to lean into him. A carpenter, a first century guy named Yeshua ben Yosef from Nazareth somehow is the global reality to which we all orient. Praise be to God.